Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. We're back. Apologies to our listeners for the lack of regular podcast posting. Like many of you, COVID has interrupted our regular workflows. We are now back on regularly scheduled programming. Thank you for sticking with us. Let's begin. Hello and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. This is episode 50 and it was recorded on Thursday, May 13th, 2021. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and the CEO of Vitreo Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. This is our sixth episode of 2021. And in case you missed it, it's also our 50th episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. Go us. For this episode, we were joined by Emolio Adieri, an advisor in donor relations for adaptabilities, and by Chris Archie, Chief Executive Officer of The Circle. Our topic, Canadians and Canadian nonprofit organizations have engaged in systemic racism. There, we said it. Now, what should we be doing about it? Systemic racism exists in every sector and strata of our society, including the nonprofit sector. From reports on why black communities are overlooked by Canadian philanthropy to the racist policies of Canada's Museum of Human Rights, systemic racism lives in Canada. Join me as I speak with two thoughtful professionals, each with their own lived experience of racism, to talk about and raise awareness of what we need to be doing to become better. It's time for the Brain Trust Philanthropy Podcast. Welcome to episode 52 of Brain Trust Philanthropy Powered by Vitreo. This is our eighth episode of 2021. Our topic, Canadians and Canadian nonprofit organizations have engaged in systemic racism. There, I said it, we said it. Now, what should we be doing about it? We have two great guests with us today. They're excited to be here. I'm excited to be here. Let's get started. First, joining us from Vancouver, we have Chris Archie. Chris is the Chief Executive Officer of The Circle. We're going to hear more about The Circle in just a minute. Chris has been on a podcast before, but this is her first visit with us. Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, Chris. Thanks for having me. Before I invited Chris to join us today, I did not know Chris, but I certainly knew of Chris. I first experienced Chris when she led a, a morning of learning about philanthropy and Indigenous peoples at our National AFP Canadian Leadership Retreat in Vancouver in 2009. It seems like a long time ago and with 2020 in the middle of that. Chris, it was an inspiring session. Thank you so much for that. Chris, before we're uh, going to dive into the topic today, um, and just a minute before we do that, I, I wonder if you can share with our listeners a bit more about what the circle is, uh, why it was formed, and, and what they hope to achieve. For sure. Happy to do that. So the Circle on Philanthropy has been around for about 10 years and originally was created by a group of folks in the philanthropic sector who wanted to ensure that more funds were going to Indigenous communities and their projects um, and formed a network of folks who could be in conversation and learning through that work. I've been with the Circle on Philanthropy for about four years. Um, it'll be four years in July. And um, we are a national member-based organization. We have two primary member audiences. We serve Indigenous organizations, grassroots groups, and non-qualified donees, um, as well as we serve uh, settler philanthropic organizations. So community foundations, private family trusts, donor advised fund holders, um, and corporate foundations. 
And the real, the real purpose of our work um, is to amplify the ways in which Indigenous philanthropic behavior continues to exist in this country. It always has. Um, you know, we, we believe very much that Indigenous communities know a heck of a lot about wealth stewardship and generosity and the redistribution of, and, and how to take care of one another. Um, but at the end of the day, we want to see more and more settler philanthropic institutions give money um, back to Indigenous organizations and communities for their important work, um, whether it's in health, in justice, in child welfare, um, in education. Indigenous communities have the leadership and the innovation to really transform um, this country toward justice. And so our work is supporting members to come together to do their shared learning, to change practice and policy, to ensure that they're in deep relationship to place. They invest in people while also bringing forward an analysis for power and making sure they're doing that work well. Wow. Okay. I, I'm going to have to audibly unpack all of that. That was amazing. Um, when I looked on your website, Chris, I was really impressed with the diversity of your leadership team. Um, really, um, you know, I, I, there were, the, you've got Indigenous people there, obviously, but you've also got other diversity on your team, which is really cool. And so you're living living quite a bit of your message, which I loved. So thanks for sharing that about the circle. We'll get back to other things in just a minute. Um, next from Edmonton, we have Imaleo <laughs> Adieri. I'm sorry, I probably butchered that. Io for short. Io is a donor relations advisor with Adaptabilities. Adaptabilities is a not-for-profit organization that helps individuals with special needs develop essential life skills they need to grow, succeed, and belong. Like Chris, Io has been on a podcast before, but this is her first visit with us. So welcome, Io. It's great to be here. I first got to know Io when she reached out to me last September. Since then, we've kept in touch. And when I asked about our podcast, our, we, I asked our, our podcast alumni, there's over 100 of them, um, for suggestions on who to invite to today's podcast. Martha Schumacher, the immediate past chair of AFP Global, also have been on this podcast a couple times, suggested IO. So it's a bit of a small world. And so IO, I also know that we're, we're going to hear from you and on this topic in a few minutes, but you're also doing something with Martha right now. You're involved in some sort of program. I wonder if you can share that a little bit with our listeners. Sure, Vincent, I can share about the program. So uh, first quarter of this year, I became one of the 11 fundraisers uh, in North America to get the AFP Alford Group uh, Leadership Mentorship Development Program. And fortunately for me, I was matched with Martha. So this program provides support and guidance to women in the profession and help them develop the leadership skills so that they can grow and sustain the fundraising profession. So I've been meeting with Mother. Uh, she's been guiding me. She's been telling me, oh, this is the way to do. And of course, I developed my own SMART goals. And it's just a whole uh, a prerogative to provide guidance and leadership and connect me with the right person because one of the goals that I wrote down was to be more visible and to <laughs> and to actually create my own personal brand as a fundraiser and a philanthropy professional. Well, I love that that uh, she encouraged you to be more uh, visible and to help build your own brand, which, of course, this I hope will help with. And I'd be curious to hear more about that as we go forward, how important that is for um, underserved populations or marginalized groups. I think that's really an important aspect of what's going on. When, How long is the program on for? Um, 
we will graduate in November 2021 at the lead conference. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. when the graduation will happen. I'm really optimistic. Maybe we'll, we're going to have like an in-person graduation ceremony. Right. And for our listeners, can you share, and, and maybe for us on the podcast too, what's the LEAD conference? I know a little bit about that, but what is its actual purpose? Oh, it's it's a leadership conference of the uh, AFB. Yeah. So it's going to happen this year in Indianapolis, I believe, in November 2021. So that's where we'll have the graduation ceremony of the 11 fundraisers across that's North right. America. And I think it's had a focus in recent years around diversity and inclusion. Uh, the AFP uh, word for that is IDEA. So yes, diversity that's right. and access. And so that's uh, that's been where it's gone. So thanks, Io, for that. Okay, let's get started. Thank you all for joining us on this, our 52nd uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. Our Today's topic, Canadians and Canadian nonprofit organizations have engaged in systemic racism. There, we said it. Now, what should we be doing about it? I have wanted to do a podcast about systemic racism in Canada for a long time, but I have to admit, I was also anxious about doing it. I'm an old white man. What business do I have doing a podcast about racism in Canada? Well, my team and especially my associate producer, Katja Asamanning, were having none of that. Uh, This topic is too important to not talk about on our podcast, so here we are. When I was preparing for today's episode, I did a Google search using the term systemic racism in Canada's nonprofit sector. Some of you will not be surprised to hear that I had no shortage of hits from this search. Uh, From Carleton University's 2019 report on why Black communities are overlooked by Canadian philanthropy to the racist policies of Canada's Museum of Human Rights. Yes, you're hearing this correctly. Canada's flagship cultural institution devoted to human rights has admitted that it engaged in systemic racism in its hiring, curation, and exhibition activities. Shanaz Gokul, the CEO of Fast and Female in Toronto, made this point in her Toronto Star article of last July, and I quote, Despite the trust and dollars we donate and invest, many of these organizations face serious internal issues. There is often a wide gap between their public mandates, which are improving people's lives and advancing society, and their private behaviors. Rampant in the sector are weak governance structures and outdated human resource policies that together often promote rather than prevent injustice, end quote. I have invited two thoughtful professionals, both with fundraising and nonprofit backgrounds, each with their own lived experience of systemic racism in Canada, to talk about and raise awareness of what we need to be doing to be better. Chris, I'm wondering if we can start with you. What's your perspective on this topic? or what I had to say. Thank you, Vincent. Well, I think one of the first things to say is just how important it is that old white men are in the conversation. Um, I think that one of the problems of this conversation in Canada is it is often relegated to um, Black and Indigenous and other racialized folks to pick up the mantle and to have the conversation and to say the things over and over and over again. And so, you know, I was willing to participate in this because I thought, well, like, you know, if Vincent's willing to have a conversation, this is a good thing. Um, As I've said previously, the experience of systemic racism 
the world we live in, which is um, a white supremacist world in this country of Canada. It means that we're all swimming in and therefore all impacted and participating in um, harm, you know? So whether we experience harm because of oppression um, from various systems or whether we're in enacting harm on others because of our um, inability to recognize our privilege, we're all complicit in some form. And so I, I appreciate being part of the conversation and certainly look forward to, um, you know, to expanding it. Because I think in, in our work at The Circle, we do a lot with what we call settler philanthropic organizations. So organizations who built their wealth on the land and on the backs of Indigenous peoples, whether it was here in this country or in, um, internationally, or whether they continue to invest in, um, in projects and resource extraction and, and harm that continues to harm um, you know, other Indigenous peoples in other parts of the world. And a lot of the work we do is supporting those individuals to recognize their privilege and to learn how to have conversations and to exercise their muscles to realize that discomfort is not going to kill them. But in fact, if they don't get over it, then you know, people who look like me will continue to get killed. And that's a problem. So um, I really am, you know, always down for the conversation and, and I'm excited to be part of it. And before I go any further, I want to just make sure that I have um, my, my fellow guest name, right? Amoliayo. Amoliayo, is that correct? Amoliayo. Amoliayo. Thank you. I want to, you know, as part of my own practice to unlearn the comfort of like saying names, I have to be willing to just try, right? To say them out loud, to try a couple of times. It's so important to me uh, when possible to try and um, get those names as right as possible to honor people um, and, and their name and their culture and heritage. So thank you for that. Thank you, Chris. That That's a great setting. I was curious about that term settler organizations because you had used it, I remember, in Vancouver. And at the time, you had also described, but I had not, it had not, I think I even have it in my notes um, because the word the, the word settler means different things across country. In fact, we have settler organizations which are actually um, set up to deal with well, settlement organizations. Settlement, right? settlement Thank organizations. Thank you for the clarification because you yeah. said settler and I said settler and, we, and I, I meant yes. So the difference between yeah, settlement so, and settler. Yeah. yeah. So we use the language of settler created philanthropy because broadly in, in the work that we do, when people talk about philanthropy, they're talking about money from wealthy individuals to those less fortunate, you know, and, and I don't like that language. We talk about equity seeking communities, those who've been denied services and investment because of racial discrimination, among other things and other forms of oppression. But, you know, as I was looking at the landscape, I thought, man, you know, this notion of being able to talk about philanthropy, um, you know, white folks have made it such a narrow idea. They're talking about wealthy individuals giving of money to others. And the sector broadly talks a lot about, you know, talent, treasure, and time, but they all value treasure. They're not talking about talent and time. And I think that that's, um, that's not okay. So um, I sat down and started doing some reflection and wanted to, as part of our work, amplify the practices, the laws and the teachings of Indigenous peoples and our continued, um, you know, our continued practices for generosity and wealth redistribution and ethical stewardship of resources. And so when I said philanthropy, that didn't fit. And so I needed to distinguish that when other folks are talking about, you know, big P philanthropy in this country, they're talking about 
Bettler created philanthropy. They're talking about organizations who predominantly sit on large assets or endowments um, that only spend out you know, the very minimum, mostly, of the a disbursement quota of their earned revenue annually. And in many ways, they don't really, in some cases, deserve the, the title of philanthropy. The work that they're doing is actually problematic and causing more harm. So I use that language to instigate and to provoke and to also help evolve the language in this country to recognize that um, this, this way of thinking about things needs to be changed. And it needs to be changed by people who look like Emolio uh, and I, not by those who get to call themselves philanthropists. I'm down with that. I love this um, idea that we have, um, we say philanthropy and we talk about time, talent and treasure, but you're quite right. Um, we're really talking mostly about treasure and we're not giving the rest of it that, that space. Um, Io, what's your perspective? I mean, I, I'm sure you share some of that with Chris, but you also come from in a different perspective. So we would love to hear your perspective as well. So share with us if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Um, I'll be speaking from the perspective of an immigrant. So most of my example will be like my own uh, shared experience as an immigrant who migrated from Africa to Canada. Uh, generally speaking, uh, Canada enjoyed the op- optics of being the world's sweetheart. I mean, everybody loves Canadian because um, they are really nice. I call them superficially nice <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because, you know, Canadians just want to be polite. Um, so I don't want to say that uh, discrimination or racism is really shouting at you when you live in Canada. It's just like in the subtle form, but it definitely exists. So I want to start with the flawed Canadian immigration system. So this immigration system attracts the best people from their respective home countries with a promise of a better life. I said flawed in the sense that it's a point-based system that award point of eligibility based on your professionalism. That's, you know, how much work experience you have, how educated you are, your age, your level of English or French usage, your health condition. And of course, they're going to check your criminal history if you've got any. So, you know, all these criteria are actually good. But here is where the issue is. Despite all this every scrutiny and the promise of a better life, when you arrive in Canada, you find out that it's not utopia as, you know, everybody believe it's supposed to be when you get there, you've gone through all this process of uh, verification. So you find out that your professional degree means nothing. And then that's the beginning of the bias. Um, For most people out of frustration, they just they just need to survive and they go get like all these survivor jobs that has nothing to do with all the years that they've spent in school, all the years that they, they've been working on a particular career path, you know? Um, so some, some of them even get stuck in this phase because uh, it, it's just like a rat race. You need to pay your bills and you're, you're, you're spending a lot of time doing all the jobs that you really even don't want to do. It's just for the few driven ones that will have to recertify. To, some will even have to join professional association before they can benefit from the same process 
that qualified them to become a Canadian resident. So how do we even begin the conversation? Because right from the what gets go, the discrimination, the bias is there for immigrants. Yeah, it's a big lie. Uh, that right. whole thing is a big lie. I mean, it's it's a, we want the accountants, the lawyers, the doctors, but we don't want you to actually practice any of that here. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. I think it's it's, 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 it's ironic. It is very ironic, and of course, that is a systemic bias. Yeah, that 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 that's built in there, and it's historically been there to protect. You know, I don't know Canadian values as perceived by white Canadians. <laughs> Right. And and I can I can go on with the hiring process where you are able to recertify yourself and you're trying to get that job that you really want to do. You know, there's that gatekeeper of recruiters, you mm-hmm. know, white sounding names versus black sounding names. You know, it's just easier for a white white sounding name to get called for interview. Than you know, we with longer names. You you can see the struggle. You know, you guys are trying to learn my name, and for most of us, we've tried to be creative. That's why we'll say, "Oh, you can call me Ayo for short." Right. For me, m- my full name means Light of Joy, and I can I can go by Ayo, which still means Joy. But for some other people, if you break up their names, it's very difficult to retain its meaning. Mm-hmm. But they just have to do it because they need the jobs. They need the jobs. So they, they go by different English names so they can get called for job interviews. I've, I've listened to some of my friends that said, oh, I got called for an interview because of my name. And when I got to the interview, they're like, oh, so you're colored, you're black, like from the expression. Oh, so and eventually they still won't get the job. So it, it, it's, it's just really a, a lot of things that um, as an immigrant, you, you have to endure. And also code switching. Honestly, I really want to learn how to do that because when I, I'm talking and people were like, can you say that again? <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't want that to happen to me all the time. I want to be able to speak fluently like every other person in the room. And at the same time, I don't want to lose my authenticity. Like I want to be authentic. I wasn't born here. I wasn't raised here. I spent the first 30 years of my life in Nigeria, Africa. So you can't expect me to speak like someone that the English teacher was maybe Kathy of Vincent. My English teacher wasn't Vincent or someone like a native English speaker. My English teacher was a Nigerian that probably learned English too. So (laughs) those are some of the things that... uh, we faced as an immigrant and that already caused the bias, the discrimination and how fast we are able to move to establish ourselves in um, a foreign place, a foreign land that we all you know, just call home now. Well, Chris, I saw you nodding along with that. And, and I, I, I don't want to speak for you. I, I want you to share what you're thinking. Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, um, Amoli Ayo, like, thank you for sharing that. I think that there are many folks who don't understand the reality of being um, a racialized immigrant to this country and think that, like, like you said, the myth of Canada being the world's sweetheart and being super inclusive and welcoming is very strong. And yet the reality is not that. Um, I've had the good fortune 
of spending time learning um, from amazing young people who are part of this program called Fresh Voices in Vancouver. And, um, you know, it was astounding to me the level of um, systemic barrier and racism that their families experienced, and then the level of administrative support that these young people had to provide to their parents and to their family members as they navigated all of these hoops um, to be recertified, um, you know, to figure out things like housing and employment supports, et cetera. Um, and then along with that is there's a whole list of like mental health concerns that end up happening because you have folks who are like proud people whose qualifications and credentials are completely useless here, right? Unless you have many more thousands of dollars to actually activate. And then once you get there, like, like you said, then there's all of the discrimination that is experienced in the hiring system. Um, I have friends who absolutely change their names to sound more white. So they're more likely to get a phone call. I have a, a good friend of mine who has um, a very unique name. Uh, he's, um, he's an Ishnabe and um, Polish um, and has a very Polish sounding name and changes his name. And then when he shows up and he's this like big, tall native guy, they're like, whoa, you know, they can't quite handle it because there's this mental dissonance. And when you're at the receiving end of that kind of continued aggression, you know what's happening when it's happening, right? And the people around you are like, oh, no, no big deal. It's like, no, no, honey, this is actually a big deal. because It is a big deal. It is a big deal. Frustration. Yeah. And I think even so. apart, I'm sorry to cut you. No, come on, I'll dig in. <laughs> even if you realize that you're having like mental health challenges, it's actually very difficult to even access help because when you go to, you know, when you go to access help, you still don't see people that look like you or people that you can trust with your story that we get it. Like yeah. even for doctors, for medical practitioners, it's really, really a tedious route for them to recertify and actually practice in Canada. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you've got the added like the added cultural norms from other countries where mental health and illness is actually, there's way more, there could be way more taboo or stigma attached to it. So now I come to a new country and I've got to like perform all of these ways that are required for me to be seen as valuable in this country. Um, and, and now I'm having this experience of depression or anxiety and you're telling me just go talk to someone like no way. And, oh, and I've got to go talk to someone who like doesn't speak my language and doesn't understand my cultural norms. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I really, I resonate with this and I have, I try to continue to understand the experience of racialized immigrants and refugees to this country, because I know that we have so much in common in terms of some of the ways in which our lived experience shows up, some of the ways in which we are disenfranchised um, from our our wisdom and our offering, which is not always just about employment. It's not always just about the extraction of what we offer this country economically. Um, and so, you know, when I think about the story you told about, um, you know, you have the ability to shorten your name, but still retain the essence of your name. Um, names are so important to me because in whether you know it or not, um, as, a, as an act of colonization and assimilation, many Indigenous communities, um, their names were taken and they were given white names and often biblical names. And so it was either the bishop or the pastor, the local kind of highest church person, usually a man, in an area or a community who would like write down the, the male heads of family 
because, you know, they didn't believe in matriarchy um, and would say, okay, what's your name? Now, you're, now your last name is Christopher. Now it's Daniels. Now it's Peter. Now it's Paul. So in my reserve, those are some of the last names of my community. Our original names have been like lost, you know, along the way. And um, there is something so important about, about names, right? And so if, if I ran into someone named Steven and I started calling him Billy, you know, he's going to take some offense to that. And yet the same courtesy isn't understood and acknowledged. And I think that has to do with like, until you go far enough back in your history to recognize where colonization and assimilation has required that kind of violence upon our bodies and our lands and our languages, it's hard for folks to recognize um, that pain, right? And to choose to do something about it. Right. Your name is your identity and you don't want to lose that. I mean, uh, dragging us back into the nonprofit profession. I am a donor relations advisor. I was a director of philanthropy. And in my role, I engage with people. I talk with people all the time. And most of the time, 98% of the time, there are people that doesn't look like me because it's really a tough one for an immigrant or a person of color to migrate to Canada and be able to establish him or herself and be in that range of uh, uh, a high net worth individual. Like you mentioned, we are all still focusing on treasures. So we are looking after, oh, how much is the, what is their wealth rate rating? How much do they earn? How do we, you know, build relationship with them so they can support what we do as an organization? So it's very, very difficult to find a person of color in that bracket. So I'm constantly also facing people that doesn't look like me, even though I'm a professional fundraiser. I don't get to uh, speak with people of color or indigenous people who are really wealthy enough to support my organization. And at one point, I actually met a high net worth um, donor who told me to stop introducing myself as a Nigerian because of the generalization of the Nigerian prince. So the Nigerian prince story is, uh, of course, you know, the Nigerian prince story. Yes, <laughs> so, yeah, she, she basically told me to stop introducing myself as a Nigerian. And I, I, my countenance changed and she apologized and said, oh, she was just joking. But oh. how, how on earth would you say something like that to anyone? at all yeah to deny your cultural heritage well and to also to deny it in the face of upholding a stereotype yeah 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 which is even like that is the that's the primary thing and you know when you talk about being a um a black woman in the philanthropic sector the 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 notion that i come across often in settler philanthropic spaces is that they're very donor centric right they're uh, they care about the donors and so even embedded inside of these organizations that are meant to do good um their their view is that it's older white people who have wealth and they're the ones who are going to give right their analysis about who else actually has wealth is completely like super outdated Indigenous people are having um, a, a resurgence 
um, in many ways, one of which is like upward class mobility in some in some instances, but additionally, like massive increase in post-secondary education, which we know has a connection to increase in wealth. Right. But here's the other thing. Um, you know, the, the folks that I know, like myself and others who have, you know, more disposable income, I will never give it to an organization who wants to endow it. I will never give it to an organization that says, let us decide where to put the money. Because guess what? They're mostly white folks who don't know anything about my community. Mm. So what do I do? I give it to a local community organization. I call up my aunties and my uncles and ask who in my community needs help and support. I'm looking at the communities that I'm seeking to build solidarity with, and I'm paying attention to what's happening and figuring out how to support them with my money. And more often than not, never with a receipt, because that's the, that's the privilege I am afforded to do. Like the receipt doesn't matter. I want this to go somewhere where it, where it can really help quickly and on the ground for folks. But that way of giving is not considered valuable. And of course not, because an organization like a community foundation um, or a donor advised fund somewhere, they're, they're not able to make dividends um, off of my money sitting in their organization, right? There's no fees to be collected if I'm deciding to give on my own, or if I create a giving circle in my own community or with my own friends and family. That kind of philanthropic behavior is like not even considered a value. Um, and so I think that's one of the, the, the slippery underbellies of the philanthropic sector that needs to be really critically examined is this donor-centric view that says the donors that matter are those with high net worth and the ones that matter the most are those who are white and older. Um, that needs to be critically um, deconstructed. I agree with you 100%. And um one thing that myself and my sisters are doing, uh, because I'm also part of the Black Canadian Fundraising Circle. Um, so what we're doing is we are organizing our own donor advice funds. We're pu pulling resources together and we are supporting um, institutions. Uh, for instance, uh, Carlton is on board. We're speaking with Umber College and you know a bunch of other institutions within the country. And we are providing scholarship opportunities uh, in form of a matching fund to um, colored people, black people uh, who want to pursue um, fundraising professions. So we, we, we give them grants, we give them uh, sponsorship and scholarship. Uh, 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 whenever they, they, they choose to um, go and study fundraising or they want to practice fundraising as a profession. So that's what we're doing in, in Black. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad to hear that because yeah. we, we are a very white profession, which only then continues to perpetuate this donor-centric view because it's, it's, it's what we know. It's where the money is, it's all that kind of stuff. But there are some big shifts happening too. I think you see the Ford Foundation in the last few months, uh, you know, they were on 60 Minutes. Um, uh, you know, Mr. Walker came up and he very clearly uh, broke that model apart very publicly. And a lot of people weren't happy with it, but he said exactly what you just said, Chris, which is this donor-centered idea makes it about the donor. Uh, this is not what this is what we should be doing. And it's a problem, right? Because we're perpetuating systems that are that are not there. There's a lot to unpack here. I try to pick different threads. Well, well, one of the things I do want to talk about, we don't have to talk about it right now, but I'm wondering what should we be doing about it? 
what are really impactful. We have talked about this stuff a lot, and I'm glad we set the stage because we need to, and people need to be reminded that it's not a kumbaya thing out there, especially for anybody who's not white. Um, and so I'm curious about what can we be doing? What should we be doing? Um, actually doing, making it, what, what's going to change this? Obviously, don't get to endowments, right, Chris? I hear that. What yeah, else? I mean, for, perhaps for some folks, that's the that's the answer, but it's not the answer that I that I preach or um, that I recommend. You know, first of all, I think one of the very first things that needs to be done is folks need to recognize that tackling white supremacy and racism is not the big, scary, complex, multi generational thing that that we've been told and we've been taught to believe that it is. What we need to be willing to do is to see that the further we move along the path to dismantling white supremacy and to honoring the difference and the culture and the abundance of other folks, we all will experience more joy and liberation in our lives. So we have to ask ourselves, who is it that telling us that tackling racism is hard? Who tells us that? Vincent, who said white people? Well, white people do. White people are the ones who say it's it's hard. Oh, it's uncomfortable. Oh, I don't like it. I said something wrong. Oh, my goodness. We have to as as you know, my my view is like as an indigenous woman, it is part of my charge in this world to demonstrate to people that actually if you turn away from white supremacy towards something else, that you will have an embodied experience that you can come back to time and time again that says when things get shaky and when I'm uncomfortable, I can continue to go on that path because I know that I can experience joy and liberation. And I only do that not by myself. I do it alongside other people. So I think that's very important. The other thing is like right now, everyone in the world cares about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And there's tons of money going out the door for organizations to, you know, from the philanthropic org sector to organizations to help them embed DEI in their work. And you know what my question is? Why are you funding organizations who've had decades to figure this out and prioritize it and build it into their own operational budgets? Why are you bailing them out? Why aren't you instead abundantly funding the organizational support and structure for Black-led and Indigenous-led and racialized-led and queer-led and disability-led organizations? Because guess what? We have baked into our organizations diversity and inclusion and justice and liberation. We work in solidarity. We are already doing that work. And so folks actually care about catalyzing impact and change. You need to abundantly fund equity-seeking-led organizations. We're already doing it. Don't go over and fund organizations who have demonstrated that they are not interested in doing it until the public will tells them that they must. So I, if I, I want to push on that because I, <laughs> I think that's a great idea, actually. Um, and I hope more people do as well. So what do we do with the people, the organizations that, didn't do that like that like that now want to though um, or maybe they don't, or maybe they don't are you saying that they don't and they should be left behind i'm saying if the, if they haven't done it yet then why should they get money from the public good to figure it out now right so when I, there are already underserved under organizations who are already doing this work i Go agree and other organizations I am not, I do not believe in dragging people kicking and screaming over to my point of view. If you don't understand the value of the work, that's fine. See you later. You go be where you're at. You go be where you're at. 
I will not meet you where you're at because where you're at causes harm to my body and to my people and my land and my communities. If you want to meet me where I'm at, which is on an aspirational future we can get to together that has more music and joy and laughter, then like, come along, let's do that. Um, but but, come, I don't, along, but come along using your own resources, please. Is what come I'm here. along using your own resources and use your power and social capital and resources which to abundantly fund our other organizations, right? So, I mean, everyone's saying like, well, we've got to get our boards on board and our senior leadership needs to get on board. And I just think, you know what, I'm going to do the work with folks who are showing up and rolling up their sleeves and who are ready to get the work done. I don't care about the broad masses. I care about people who have influence and who are going to use that influence to try and create transformation and change. The other thing, though, is I think um, there needs to be a heck of a lot more critical analysis given to philanthropic organizations and their disbursement. We need to have conversations about how they can continue to underfund Black and Indigenous organizations to the tune of less than a penny. Um, you know, I think that there are, other, there are other ways that organizations can do better, but, you know, creating big funds so that DEI can be applied in institutions or organizations who've had decades to get it right and didn't and only care only care now because the public cares and says to big, huge organizations, hey, so how many um, Indigenous leaders do you have, even though you serve a bunch of Indigenous folks? How many Black folks are on your board or in your senior leadership team, right? So I think that it's, it, it's just laying to bear the reality that until the public cares about it, charitable organizations and or philanthropic organizations weren't about to do anything about it um, on their own. And so there are handfuls of groups who are doing that work. I'm super thankful that at The Circle, we have a whole bunch of members who are amazing, who are, who are really doing um, a lot of really great and creative work in this space. Um, but yeah, I have very little patience for the let's help folks who finally feel like it's something they should be working on when there's organizations all over this country who, um, you know, what would be great for them to get is enough money to, to keep their lights on, to give their staff living wages, to give them health benefits, to contribute to a pension and, and parental leave top up. Let's give stability to the organizations who are already building on the ground in diverse, in diverse like on diverse issues in diverse communities um, about issues that are actually about justice and about like honoring human rights. That's where money needs to go. Okay. Well, I knew that you wouldn't have an opinion, Chris. Um, so I'm sorry if I put you on the spot. That was awesome. And really um, uh, what I loved about your comments and I, and, 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 and is that, th that you're very clear and, and you, I don't want to use the word, I will use the word. You're not taking any prisoners on this. Uh, no. It's, it's, it's uh, we're going there. So I, I, I owe, What's your perspective on, right. on yeah, what, what, what do we need to do better? What, what can we do to change things? You've heard from Chris, and I completely agree with those things. So what about you? I'm going to um, echo everything that Chris already mentioned, but in another way, right? So firstly, I am going to say we should wake up to the truth of systemic racism. Yeah, we're doing it, but we can still do a better job at it. Uh, we need to accept that it is real, it is happening, even if we have not experienced it. Um, we should still consider, you know, Black, indigenous, indigenous people of color, immigrants, 
people who has been disadvantaged because of their race, color of their skin and denied access to opportunities. Uh, you know, for example, for a white person, they are always innocent until proven guilty. Uh, the wages, you know, statistically, it's really higher for white people. Uh, white color symbolic with goodness, uh, white lies, black mm-hmm. magic, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> really that- dark, dark torts, tort, dark tort. You know, um, even Jesus is, uh, it's white Jesus, you know, and the devil is black. <laughs> you know, we, 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 we just we just need to acknowledge that this is real. It is happening and we need to self-educate. Even if we, we we've not experienced it, we need to self-educate ourselves and find materials online, read up. Also, we should stop the stereotype. Don't stereotype. We should continue to encourage dialogue. Uh, we have to be conscious and deliberate or how we reduce the impact of racism. And on the organization part, nonprofit organizations should walk the talk. You know, it's very easy to talk about DEI right now because it's the shiny thing. But like Chris mentioned, what is the path? What is the path for a BIPOC person to move from just being an ordinary staff into leadership positions? Uh, we need to start doing audits of our board members. How many people on the board are actually um, BIPOC people? You know, we, we really need to, to do that. We need to have authentic conversations, just like what we're doing right now. I mean, not pity party, you know, we just want to talk about it because it's the shiny thing, but we really need to let people tell their stories. We need to listen. We need to acknowledge their struggles without judgment. We need to empathize, even if you don't understand it, <laughs> because a lot of people don't understand it. Uh, but you, you need to empathize and, and show support. We need to stop all this micro adjustment, no matter how little, because um, we just want to change the narrative because we, we've not experienced it. We want to change the narrative, but we need to be uh, humble enough to to listen to what the other person is saying yeah i i I know that uh um about 336 ceos already signed the black north initiative pledge and i'm really looking forward to um, many nonprofit organizations to also come on board and say yes we are doing this i mean i'm a member of the idea the afp idea and i shared this with you vincent um when I joined that committee, one of the things that came to me was to go ch- check my own organization's employee manual to see if there's the high statement. So, and I brought it up. I was asked to draft something, which I did. And my supervisor took it to leadership. I'm still waiting for the outcome of that anyway. So that's still something that we can do as individuals, even if we believe we don't have that much influence in our organization, we can pick up our organizational manual and just, you know, look for that gap and try Mm -hmm. to offer suggestions. So some, these are some of the things that I think we can do going forward. I love that. When we did the prep for the show, I think we talked about this, Io, a little bit about uh, uh, how these things can start in organizations. And uh, I, I, right after that session, I started talking to our team about that, right? As opposed to just me telling 
us how to do it. I said, well, why don't we like talk to the group and figure out what, get together a group of people who are actually going to start dealing with this, right? We have to have this grow and be mindful. It can't just be talk, right? And, uh, and, I, and I can't solve it because a lot of the problems are in me. Our culture, mm. like I, they have to be broken out of this old white man. And, um, and even if I'm willing, they still have to be broken out of this old white man. So I think we need to be uh, thoughtful about that. And I, I'm glad to hear those are great solutions. You talked, I know, in our pre-show um, talk, Chris, about some of the work you're doing, I think, um, at the national level around even with uh, Canada Revenue Agency data. Um, mm. and, and that I'm wondering if we could, if, we, if you would share a few minutes about that, because it, it overlays very much with what Mark Bloomberg and other have been talking about in terms of we do not have good data. That's right. Yes. So, um, you know, first of all, I have to acknowledge that um, Senator Ratna Omidvar has been a massive supporter of the nonprofit and the charitable sector in this country. And I think very much is listening to the voices of of equity seeking organizations to understand that data serves us in in, as well as the broad um, community. Um, So I was part of a small community of folks who were um, engaged in work alongside Stats Canada to create that um, group, what's called a crowdsource survey that happened last December and into January called the Diversity of Charity and Nonprofit Board of Directors. And we knew going in what the kind of limitations for that data capture was because it's crowdsourced, meaning that there isn't like um, accurate sample sizes. And um, I think that we discovered what we thought we would discover there. there were no big surprises. The downfall of that data capture is that we weren't able, because of the lack of sampling and the timelines and the budgets and all of those things, we weren't able to tell a different kind of story. And the story I'm interested in telling with a very specific lens for Indigenous communities is that um, I understand that the majority of Indigenous organizations, Indigenous-led organizations, are led by Indigenous women. And I think that the majority of Indigenous organizations and other equity-seeking organizations have board diversity already built in and have probably for many, many, many years, if not decades. There is a level of organizational and operational and governance wisdom that exists should only we capture the right data to amplify it and help folks navigate in toward um, a future that says, there's some leadership wisdom here that exists already and how can we actually support that? So um, the data is not good enough. The T3010, you know, the, um, the um, I can't remember their name suddenly, the advisory for um, the advisory committee on the charitable sector, yeah. they've come out with a series of reports. I really recommend that people take a look at that and recognize that they have some great recommendations on how the T3010 could actually help us get better data about the sector. The circle on philanthropy is very serious about telling a different story about Indigenous charitable organizations, not just that we're cash strapped and under resourced, uh, but also that we're doing the kind of innovative work that moves towards social justice and actually adds a lot of value to the social fabric of this country. And as we know, other equity seeking um, Black and, and racialized organizations are doing the same. And so if we have data that tells that story, that would be great. Who doesn't benefit from those kinds of narratives? The big, huge organizations who tend to get the bulk of donations from direct giving in this country and or who are the ones who have fully staffed development teams who are more likely to get larger dollars from bigger donors and or from other philanthropic organizations. So the real test will be whether or not 
um, you know, we're able to, as a community of folks, keep gathering that kind of data and moving this narrative forward. Um, and again, just, you know, thanks to, Ren uh, to Senator um, Omidvar and also in her work to um, around Bill's um, I think it's 222 around direction and control, which actually is a very simple and easy pathway to reduce discrimination in um, the income tax laws it relates to charities. It's a simple thing to do. Let's just get it done. Yeah. And 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 I know a little bit about that 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 report, the charitable committee. Uh, my 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 uh, um, former business partner and still an associate with the firm, Andrea McManus. Is, um, is on that committee and she shared it with our entire team. And it, it is incredible what we could do with just changing that one form. So I think that's fantastic information. I'm mindful of our time. Uh, I always know that we oh, there's like five or six podcasts that we could do just with the, and what I loved about this podcast today was that you probably saw me sitting back. I wasn't trying to get a word in edgewise because I didn't need to. The two of you were actually, you're like, you know, I could, I could have left. And, uh, and, and I think you guys could have carried the podcast very well. So I really appreciate what both of you have brought to this. I, I appreciate there is risk, um, uh, uh, depending on where you are in your career or where you are in your life or, or et cetera, um, when you come and, and speak about these things. Um, but I, and so I applaud you for your, for your courage in doing that. And I know, um, uh, you know, it, sometimes when you're in a different leadership position, that's not so much risk, but, you know, IO is, is working in an organization. So we have to, I'm thoughtful about, you know, the fact that you, you're speaking very candidly and I appreciate it and we appreciate it. So I, you were going to say something, I think, to that, Chris, I saw your, maybe I'm misreading your facial expression. Yeah, no, yeah, I think um, it is true that I fully recognize that in the position that I hold as a CEO, I have the ability to speak my mind and I have an amazing board who supports the kinds of things that I say um, publicly, and I'm very thankful for that. However, I I have to continually come back to this place of reminding folks that the bigger risk for me, for my body, my community, and for those that I seek solidarity with, is to not speak when I have an opportunity. Um, and so that that risk is is harder and much more on my bodies, and the and the real harm. Um, is bigger in, in that space. So I feel, you know, compelled to engage and be in these conversations. I thank you for the opportunity um, to, well, first, I mean, I'm so excited for the opportunity because I got to meet Amole Ayo. Um, and also thank you, Vincent, for just being open to this conversation. Well, thank you both for that. I appreciate your comments. Um, I want to give you each an opportunity to to share with our listeners, um, to 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 reemphasize a point you talked about, or to just talk about something you think they should have. Um, this show is coming out, as we know, in August, so people are going to hear it in late August, early September. But maybe um, I'll start with you, Emolio. I hope I got the name right finally. Yeah, Yay! I've been practicing it in my head for the whole show. Um, uh, but thank you. You for did good, Vincent. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you uh, if you wouldn't mind, uh, I'm giving you the floor. I'll, I'll let Chris take the last word as we go out. But what would you like our listeners to hear or take away from or, or just think about with respect to your your world and worldview? Yeah. Um, as a professional fundraiser uh, or someone who studied philanthropy, I still think philanthropy has the capacity to uh, leverage opportunities to amplify voices in the sector and support short, medium and long-term solutions towards equitable and just society. And I really think philanthropists can encourage initiatives and organizations that 
truly promote idea that's uh, inclusion, diversity, equity, and access. Um, I want it to be added to the funding requirement when applying for grants. Um, and on a personal note, on a personal note, if anyone has experienced um, racism in their career, in their workplace, and would love to talk to someone who will listen without judgment, I want to say I'm available. We can just have a heart-to-heart -heart chat about it. Uh, not that I have any solution, but I just believe that once you are able to share, you the, the heart, the pain is lessened. Uh, so I'm available. You can reach me on lihl.mole at gmail.com. That's my personal email address. And everything I've shared here, they are all my own views and thoughts. It doesn't have the approval of the organization I work with. I need to put that out there. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Moliao. I really appreciate that. And thank you for sharing that. And thanks for being open to people reaching out to you. Um, uh, we will also put that in, of course, in the show notes and lots of other materials too. So thank you for that. That was beautiful. Chris, over to you. You get the last word today. What do you want folks to hear and know and think about? Thank you. So many things. I know. Um, you, uh, you've got, things, you've got um, the floor. I think one of the things I want folks to know about is that in November, we are, the Circle is having its first annual, what we're calling a fall feast. And it's our, um, it's a multi-day gathering that will bring together shared learning and seek to mobilize knowledge specific to the practices of Indigenous philanthropy in this country but also we'll be highlighting the policies and the practice and the power shifting that's happening inside of settler philanthropic organizations. Um, we'll be launching our national research agenda um, and we're really excited about that gathering. So keep your eyes and ears peeled for that. You can check us out on Twitter um, as well as through our website, sign up for our newsletter um, to learn more about those, um, those offerings that we have as well. You know, I think that I want to leave people with this with this question um, that when they're having a moment of fear or anxiety or resistance or discomfort when it comes to conversations related to race and white supremacy and privilege, um, just ask yourself who is served by the idea that this is difficult um, and who else could be served if I actually continued onward. Um, and I think that that you know, those questions alone can be very helpful and pivotal in helping folks stay really present to the possibility that there is another world on the other side of this. Um, and there is an individual action I can take, which is first to notice who is, who is benefiting here? Um, who else could benefit? And what kind of a world could that be? Um, so I'll leave people with that. Thank you. Okay. Uh, so like another deep thought. Oh my gosh. I am. Um, and I want to thank both of you for, um, for letting this old white guy uh, step out of his comfort zone. Um, I, I, I'm I'm imperfect person, uh, like all of us are, and I, I would like to be better. And I know many of us wouldn't. So I'm thank you for telling us that um, the white supremacists of which I am part of uh, are also part of the solution and need to be part of the solution. So thank you both for that. With that, our gift of another brain trust philanthropy powered by Vitreo has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. Please join us next time when we share episode two of our Legends of Fundraising series. I shared an hour with Bob Carter, former CEO of Ketchum USA and former chair of AFP Global. It was a terrific session. 
stay tuned. Until then, take care, stay safe, and stay sane. We look forward to talking with you soon. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Katja Asselmanning and me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is produced in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Vitreo Group. That's at sign V-I-T-R-E-O Group. You can listen and subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or by visiting our website, betrayogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, and hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.